0: Welcome to What's Korean Cinema 28 on A Man Who Was mm. Superman. Want to be kicked in the balls, experience complex psychology, and be filled with positivity? Korea made one such movie for you, and it's 2008's A Man Who Was Superman. Starring the sassy girl, we'll tell you all about it. With me, Kennedy B and Han Gold Celluloid's Paul Quinn, who's uh, looking looking through his uh, notes, and like, kicked in the balls, kicked in the balls, complex psychology, is it this movie? Who oh, it is? It is this movie, isn't it?
1: Exactly what I was doing. <laughs>
0: Let's, uh, let's not waste any time. There's a lot of uh, cool content to be, uh, to be covered here, including a discussion on the a Girl herself. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a career, even if it's ongoing, to, um, to uh, go back. It's worth going back in time to look back on that career, even if it is ongoing. Very much. Let's uh, go through the contact information really quick. This is What's Korean Cinema on the podcast on Fire Network. Uh, we have plenty of shows on Hong Kong cinema, Japanese cinema, in this case Korean. We have Sleazy Cinema and Ninja Cinema. We also do audio commentaries and bonus episodes every now and again. Email us if you have any uh, questions or feedback. I'm sure this uh, movie and its stars, uh, whether talking this movie or their prior movies is something uh, many people know. Thing or two about so share your thoughts and opinions. We would love to hear from you. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com. Join us over on social media for said same sound discussion. Uh, click the Facebook button to reach our page. And uh, once you're on Facebook, type in Podcast on Fire Network and you'll find the discussion group as well. Follow us on Twitter by clicking that button. Subscribe to us rate us and leave a comment uh, directed to us on facebook there's a button for that and finally stream us on stitcher radio the button will lead to their website presence but they also have an application available on the apple app store and google play so you can stream us on the go. And I write about uh, Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies of, of a variety of genres, uh, mostly adult oriented. SoGoodReviews.com. And I also do a little basic video reviews on sleazykvideo.com. And my Twitter feed is uh, located uh, at SoGoodReviews. That's the handle. So search me out over there. Angle celluloid has reviewed every John G. Hyun movie, I suppose, up until this point. Like you never miss a beat when it comes to reviewing movies with the Sassy Girl, right?
1: Kind of, yeah. The only things I haven't reviewed are her non-Korean stuff simply because I haven't. The only one of her, fil- her Korean films I haven't reviewed, I-, I think, is The Uninvited, which I really should do because I, I rate it very highly. Very understated horror film.
0: Well, it's never going to be unavailable, so it's uh, uh, and and you probably own it anyway.
1: I do, indeed, and I again, same thing as s- certain other actresses. Um, I've got all her movies on DVD, all in their little Jin, Jin section. Pathetic, really. But no, hey. no,
0: no, no. That's that's fucking organized, dude. That's uh, that, that's that's the way to do it. I'm I'm more boring in that regard. All Hong Kong A to Z in one po at, in one place. Next is like Japan. And then there's a little Korean section. You know, I don't buy them constantly, but uh, I'm filling them up slowly but surely through this show, even though we watch certain of the stuff legally online. Uh, But yes, I bought the movie in question for this episode. So there there it is. But uh, regardless, uh, uh, those reviews, if you did them, of those movies you haven't uh, reviewed, where would they end up on the web?
1: I'm Paul. I run hangleselluloid.com, which is where all those reviews and what have you up here. Um, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash HangleCelluloid, Twitter on at HangleCelluloid. Pop to the website, have a look. There are loads of interviews, loads of reviews, and hopefully at some point I will maybe get the chat to Jeon but we will have to see.
0: Is that like a realistic dream or a dream dream?
1: I think that's pretty much a pipe dream to the nth degree. Getting interview opportunities with actors is easy getting with directors is easy getting interviews with actresses is a nightmare and has been over all the years
0: meaning that they're simply busy or they're being super selective with uh, media oh.
1: i think they just they just work all the time more than actors male actors they just they move from tv to movie to movie to movie you know you take Sonya Jin, she had three movies out last year you know, Jin Jin movie after movie one back to back really so they're just they're hard to pin down they're just so busy
0: and like the 80s and 90s uh, Hong Kong actors and actresses are kind of like snickering at that I did three movies per year like that's cute <laughs> God, I'm Andy Lau. I appeared in 15 this year. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a fair point. I guess
0: back then, though, I should say it's not—it's uh, not how it works in in, in uh, modern Hong Kong and mainland China. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, rundown. Since we have a few sections coming up, and not just our review of A Man Who Was Superman, I thought I'd give you a summary of what's coming up, and you can jump ahead to any section following the timestamps I've written in the show post on podcastonfire.com. First, we discuss then frequent, not anymore. Director Jong uh, uh, Jun Chiol followed by a biography and discussion of our female lead Jun Ji-hyun or Jana Jun. And we conclude with our review of a man who was Superman. So that's the, the easy enough but there's some context and uh, and uh, information to follow before we uh, do a review. But first of all, plot from Paul's review of the film. So so Jun played by Jun Ji-hyun of a female lead from My Sassy Girl, has spent the past three years working as a television program uh, maker or director, specializing in human interest stories. But her Hatred of people, the long hours spent uh, faking tear jerking documentaries and not having been paid for three months have all pushed her to the end of her tether. She smokes, you know, constantly, chain smoking, her hair is falling out, and she has started to hear the voice of a narrator ringing in her head, commenting on her every move. To save her sanity, she decides to quit her job, taking a camera in lieu of uh, money she owed, they travel to Africa and earn enough money from filming lions to enable her to join her boy boyfriend who is in Mongolia helping her locals, her locals. However, after falling asleep at the tube station she wakes up to find that her camera has been stolen and while chasing after the thief she is uh, almost run over, but she is saved by the intervention of a strange man in a Hawaiian shirt when asked who he, who he is. The man insists that he is Superman, played by uh, Huang Jung-min, and claims that the bald villain has put kryptonite in his head, resulting in the loss of his powers. All of which leads So Jung to conclude that he is a total nutcase. But when doctors subsequently discover that there really is some foreign object in his brain, she realizes she may have stumbled upon the greatest story of her career. Well done, Paul. Well done. Thank you very much. So background. Written and directed by seemingly current you know currently non-active director, you know, at least for feature movies. I don't know, maybe he does TV or shorts. Uh he's called uh, Jong yoon Chol and uh, he was very active for a short stretch, you know, very active, starting with 2005's Marathon about an autistic boy who dreams of running a marathon. It was described as a heartwarming uh, movie. It was the fourth most attended movie in Korea that year and got the uh, director's profile elevated even more uh, during awards season because the movie bagged best film, best actor, best original screenplay, which he co-wrote, and best new director at Korea's Graham Bell Awards. Just like slam dunk right there, you know. Massively. So that that was the movie of the year, I suppose. So memories of that movie, Marathon, rated highly, overrated, gush, possibly not gush. So the floor is yours.
1: Rated exactly as it should be. It's an incredible film. It's Hugely famous, and rightly so, for his debut to be that successful, says I, everything I hate, I hate
0: Korean directors sometimes, because we, we've stumbled upon that fact that, yep, yeah, that was his or her debut movie. Really? I mean, it's so good from the get-go that it's disgusting sometimes.
1: It seems to happen again and again and again. I think it's a great thing. It's also something that that just provokes huge jealousy. Marathon is an astonishing film. It's become a classic. As I think, a man of who was Superman is as well,
0: and and not too sugary or like preachy, uh, considering its subjects, because it could those kind of movies can go so wrong. Where it like, like I, I like uplifting movies, I like positivity, but you can overdo it.
1: Totally, but if you, as we will discuss with a man who was Superman, when you look at his work, it's got I think a really nice balance, a really nice level. There, there's a lot of darkness in this stuff, but it's ultimately positive in the right way, Marathon's not over gushy, it's just, it's a beautiful film about a guy with, with autism, you know, uh, who goes through everything he has to do to become who he wants to be regardless of his disability, it's a its a gorgeous film.
0: And uh, I certainly should should seek it out, I remember hearing of it back in the day, but you know me, I, I spend my time uh, examining crap from elsewhere. <laughs>
1: Understandable. understandable. Yep,
0: that's just how I roll. But uh, some minor pre-debut details. Uh, John graduated from the School of Film and Theatre at Hanyang University. He made waves with his short film Memorial Picture and uh, went on to study editing as well. Uh, multi-talent, uh, uh, multi-talent brewing there uh, at the Australian Film Theatre and Radio School. He made a further short, a subsequent short called Hibernation, that eventually won the Best Director Award at the Xinjiang Film Festival. Any, uh, any exposure to those uh, shorts in question?
1: Those shorts are completely impossible to get hold of. Wow. There's just no way. They're, they're so small. They're so, you know, he was, he was learning his craft that you just can't get them. As we're about to mention, he did a short for a film called If You Were Me 3, which was one of a series of films about human rights and his short in that I have seen. And again, it's, it's it's about discrimination of immigrant workers and it is, again, a beautiful, insightful piece of filmmaking. But that's the only short you can get anywhere near hold of.
0: Cutting back to the movie career then, he followed up Marathon in 2006 with, with that uh, short movie and it was called uh, Muhammad the Hermit King. And so uh, that, that was what he did in between his next uh, feature, which would be 2007's Shim's Family. Which was described on IMDB in the following way, which sort of tickled me. An ordinary but eccentric family keep their emotions in check and live their individual humdrum lives. So cl- it's clearly not a melodrama if everyone's keeping their emotions in check, <laughs> right? So that that's me being jokey. I just found that uh, amusing. But have you seen Shim's Family? And did uh, did Jong manage to repeat any audience and critics' success with this one?
1: Very much so. He, For the time he was active, and he is now again active, which we'll mention later on, he just he hit all the right buttons. Shim's Family is... I wouldn't even say they're an eccentric family. They're completely dysfunctional. Everything that they shouldn't be doing, they do. You know, the the young girl is in love with her teacher. You know, all, it's just complete dysfunction. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, positive little film again.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask, is it dark, therefore? But uh, no, it seems like it verges on. Yeah, you know, okay, I'm, I'm sure it is dark eventually, but uh, it's not fully dark. It's
1: certainly not fully dark. There There are dark elements, but they're almost comedic by the very nature.
0: And then we're at the end already. Or the current end, maybe. I'll I'll find that out in a bit. As 2008's A Man Who Was Superman, that, that was the last movie Jong directed you know, at the time of uh, recording. That's the last movie Jong has on his resume in terms of feature movies, anyway. Based on admissions that year, about 560,000, that seems like a step down, considering... For for the director and considering the star appeal here in the form of John Ji Hyun and uh, obviously the male lead as well, and uh, in comparison that year had juggernauts such as The Good, the Bad and the Weird and The Chaser that tallied about five or six million in terms of admissions, so it's a bit a little bit smaller. But uh, what was the critics' take on A Man Who Was Superman? And uh, you know, do do you remember if it was um, truly a flop based on that uh, admissions uh, number?
1: certainly not truly a flop if you if you look at the the entire box office for that year yeah it's it's kind of low considering you know you got forever in the moment with 4 million you've got you know the Chaser with 5 million but there are a lot of films that only had 100,000 150,000 it didn't do as badly as those sort of numbers would suggest it was well received it was it was really well received by critics and the audiences that did see it thought of it very favourably.
0: Let's flip it by the way those numbers for The Good The Bad and The way and The Chase are those like they're like abnormally huge numbers for admissions uh, or, or five or six million is you know it happens every now and again.
1: Depending on the year it's either phenomenal or really very good in terms of 2008 they're phenomenal numbers I mean they, they just outshine everything else you know you look down the actual list of films and the big ones are are the ones that have become the classics of Korean cinema. You know, The Chaser, which led to The Yellow Sea, etc., etc. Hey,
0: hey, let me stop you there. The director of The Chaser and The Yellow Sea, both movies that I, I really liked, uh, did he or she? I guess it's he. Uh, hey. m- make anything after the, the Yellow Sea because that's a good five or six years ago by now.
1: Yes, and I'm trying to think what it it was. Um, he has a mo- he had a movie out last year, I think
0: just so we didn't lose another one. <laughs> Two movies and I can't make any um, more movies.
1: Do you know what? I almost want to hit myself on the head for having to think about what his latest movie is. His latest one's The Wailing, which was out last year and was a huge, massive hit. Bigger than The Yellow Sea. Bigger than The Chaser. Everybody's been talking about The Wailing. It's sort of a, a very offbeat horror about people getting rashes, murdering their families. It's really dark. It's got Wang Min in it and, you know, catch it. Um, In terms of its release, it's already been released in Korea. It's getting a UK release um, and his... Career's going from strength to strength to strength.
0: Excellent. Uh, did did he use those uh, leads from the Chaser and the uh, Yellow Sea? The uh, uh, the leads that then flipped sort of uh, roles between good and bad guy uh, uh, when the second movie came around. Uh, or... No,
1: this this was a complete step away. Um, he, you know, it's just he got Wang Jin-min because he was the the star name, and then the other actors and actresses very much less well known. He's the star. He's the I can't say whether he's good or bad, but he is the big fellow in the film.
0: And, of course, we all wonder, is there any, or at least I do, uh, is there any word on A uh, Man Who Was Superman's uh, Marathon and Shim's Family director, jong Yoon shol Like, what's, what's his current status? Has he been up to anything? Uh, but, you know, my research indicates that there's no other feature movies done or none in development, so does anyone know?
1: After A Man Who Was Superman, which was 2008, he disappeared. He just seemed to stop working. Now, thinking about it, if he was still not working, I would have assumed maybe he's gone away, maybe he's moved away from cinema entirely, but he's currently, at this point in time, filming a new film that's due to be released next year. The working title anyway is called The Proxy Soldiers, which is the story of an emperor... Leaving for the Ming Dynasty, abandoning the Korean people, and his successor brings in forces and it's all it's from their perspective it's mercenaries helping the government in historical Korea uh, so it sounds very, very interesting, I guess he also ha- played a part in a film called Ari Ari: the Korean Cinema in two thousand and eleven, which was uh, basically a documentary about. Important directors, so I assume between two thousand and now he's actually just been trying to find the project he wants to do writing a script and just he's taken his time,
0: which is uh, something I admire because you when you get caught up in a commercial game, it's so uh, filmmaker or actor. I think it's so easy to just uh, be asked to you know perform you know yeah. and uh, th- thank God there for no one like prodded him you know make make make. No, it's it, it it's a slight parallel, but I'll do it anyway. I, I saw the Beatles documentary at the scene about a few weeks ago, the, uh-huh. um, the Ron Howard one. And I mean it's a fine as a documentary, and uh, I, I I like the archival footage, but what I like the most is that it ends at the Sgt. Peppers era. Like, just as they conceived that. That's where it ends. And the movie sort of uh, Paul McCartney likes to say that. This sucks. I mean, make a record, go on the road. Make a record, go on the road. Like, this is not creativity. This sucks. We, we want to be in the studio. Let's be someone, some some other people instead. And then it all sort of, in montage form, goes to that crescendo. Boom! The cover of Sgt. Pepper's. I like that, that they found their own terms of being creative. And uh, no one forced them out on the road again, other than play, playing on the roof. You know, and that was it. So... I, I hope that's the same for for Jong that he can you know, hopefully he can survive you know, <laughs> and uh, totally, totally. it's good that someone isn't there like on a contract, co- contract and like you have to deliver a movie every second or third year or whatever that uh, they they believe him in, believe in him enough I think that let, let him work, let him be creative for as long as he wants.
1: I w- I would hope he's one of those people that just is going to make a film when he feels it's right to make a film and the fact that I've loved everything I've seen of his sort of says that's the right way to go and not be pushed into get another film out whether it's, you know, as good as it should be or not.
0: Want to talk uh, Jun Ji Hyun?
1: Very much. Quite
0: a lot. I think we'll skip that section, actually. Oh. <laughs> Let's uh, bring in some context here. Well, who is she and uh, what is she in terms of uh, what has she become and all of that? And uh, we have a little bit of a superstar aura that have us uh, in and around our female lead. John Ji Hyun, you know, to say the least. Also known by her English name, uh, Gianna Jun. So, the Sassy girl from My Sassy Girl was born in Seoul in 1981, and uh, she was encouraged by her parents to try modelling at 16. And she was recommended by a friend uh, to a for uh, uh, both her family and a friend, I suppose, who recommended her to a photographer. And under the stage name of uh, John Ji Hyun, she started her career as a model in 1997. She did commercials and uh, TV acting as well, and made her debut as an actress on film in the quote-unquote, you know, based on research, uh, Little Watch, The White Valentine from 1999. Does that movie deserve a spotlight if you know of it and have seen it? Is it one of those small movies that never had a chance to be seen widely because it was like an independent movie? Or?
1: It's It's a small movie. It's watchable to see her so early in her career, and her performance in it is great, but it's a very derivative, generic romance across one of those... Romance across time—things that New Korean Cinema did all the time, where two lovers are separated, whether one's dead or whether one's in a different time frame—and she actually will talk about other films. That
0: yeah, I was about to say sounds very familiar to, uh, to a subsequent movie that came out.
1: Well, we'll deal with that in a minute. But there's even sections in Korean libraries on you know romance across time movies in Korean cinema. So. It's a small movie. It's worth watching for her performance but it's really only worth watching for her early performance.
0: She became quite popular you know noticeably so appearing in a commercial for Samsung where she sort of Started to leave an impression on uh, specific demographics, uh, such as late teens, early twenties, that kind of crowd, through her dancing and her attitude, as the uh, sort of research indicated, which I'm sure is true. I just found out in music, like her dancing, that's what did it. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, co- commercials break through like a motherfucker sometimes. So uh, you know, it's uh, when you do it right, then it then it's everywhere. Uh, she raised her acting profile a little bit more uh, by acting in the two thousand romantic uh, made in two thousand romantic drama Il Mare, which was late. The remade in america as the lake house starring Sandra bullock and keanu reeves so how was the korean original how was the remake
1: every time we do a podcast there's one section of it where i go into rant mode and this is that part of the podcast elmer is a gorgeous classic romantic comedy we just mentioned love across time it's two characters that are connected through a magical mailbox. It sounds hideous. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, one's in two thousand, and the others in two years. I think two years further ahead. I think two thousand and two. It might be the other way around.
0: But 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 it's set in like a regular world. This just happens to be an element in that regular world that's uh, you know magic.
1: Totally. And they essentially, they live in the same house, the house that's called Il Mare, at different time frames. And when they get talking, they gradually fall in love. But of course, they don't think they can ever be together because they're from different time periods. Gorgeous, beautiful, understated little movie, visually stunning, quirky, Intelligent, warm dialogue. The remake is a travesty.
0: I, I know it isn't liked. I mean, it's not that you're the sole one that uh, stands against it. I, it came and went pretty quickly in my recollection, and I don't think anyone speaks like highly of it.
1: I have a problem with, as you know, with U.S. remakes of Korean films. I don't think they work. I don't think they should be done.
0: It's e- it seems easy enough to transfer it, though. You know, if we, you know, if we're being a little bit fair. It doesn't seem uniquely career, but you have to make it good. That's the sort of key, key thing or all. Totally.
1: And if you look at the lake house, you've got Keanu Reeves, who, no matter what you think of his career, he does have a tendency to sometimes be a little bit cardboard. Yeah. He has never been more cardboard than he is in the lake house. He goes through the whole movie telling other characters what's going on in his head to explain what you're looking at on the screen. It is Hideous. There's no chemistry between himself and Sandra Bullock. It's just, it's awful. And and out of all the remakes, I find it the hardest to get through. And that's saying quite something because I hated the remake of My Sassy Girl. I was about
0: to say, like, isn't that the the sort of. uh... Not gold standard, but brown standard of <laughs> of remakes, My Sassy Girl.
1: You would almost think so. The Lake House is worse.
0: Maybe we should do bonus episodes on just remakes and see how long it takes for Paul to start cutting himself just cutting himself just to feel something.
1: <laughs> You'll have to cut out all the sounds of my tears. They're just, they're terrible. Anyway.
0: Jun Ji Hyun broke out big time in 2001 in the comedy My Sassy Girl where she played the unhinged girlfriend, uh, you know, very... Quirky or she poured pasta or puked on someone in in the in a train. That's like an yeah. iconic scene or whatever. It was a hit across Asia. Went on to become the highest grossing movie in Korea at the time. And she got, you know, based on the hit across Asia, she got pan-Asia stardom, you know, big time. And eventually won the Best Actress Award at the local Grand Bell Awards. And in Korea, media even dubbed her Nation's First Love. I mean, look at that. That almost sounds like you're now in office, essentially. <laughs> like you're so great in that movie, we're gonna we're gonna the branch of government needs you. Your nation's first love. <laughs> uh, but, but they sort of based that on her natural beauty and charming image. And I was surprised at that because media is usually very shitty across the world. I'm surprised this piece of positivity managed to stand out, media being nice to stars. Who knew? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they've been shitty to her subsequently for irrational reasons, but that was like, we all love you, you're the best. We're we're, going to change the game by actually, as tabloids, actually say nice things about you or whatever, so.
1: Yeah, she's had kind of a, a difficult run, you know, becoming so loved early on in her career and starring in advert after advert. If you go on YouTube and type her name in, you will find hundreds of adverts. And it's almost, it it feels like people got so used to seeing her on their TVs in the ad breaks that they just sort of got a bit tired of her. And her career sort of started to fail when it never should have. You know, it's that that love-hate thing.
0: Yeah, and we sort of get to that um, where as a brand needed to be rebranded, I suppose, um, a little bit, in movies and, and commercials, I suppose. Uh, in terms of uh, My as a girl, I wasn't the, the biggest fan of it. I, I recognized its quirky and emotional elements, uh, because eventually there's a purpose for a lot of things. And uh, I like such a mixture. But the, the movie didn't stick with me. Maybe the shorter cut would, because I started to get really, really antsy that by 120, 130 it was still going on. That is the director's cut, mind you. So, you know, but I, I had a hard time extracting her performance because I sort of couldn't get on with the movie. She, she's good, and the dramatic turnaround is, but at 140 minutes, it was a trick for me personally. So uh, that's why I never really returned to it, and it sort of left my consciousness. But uh, what, uh, what's your take on My Sassy Girl so many years on
1: My Sassy Girl, probably one of the most personal opinions I have about any film. I kind of fell in love with Yun Ji-hun. In my sassy girl, I loved her feistiness, and that sort of warmed me enough to get me through to the halfway point when the film becomes the melodrama that it always should have been. I enjoy it specifically because it's where I find her. I rate it quite highly. It is too long.
0: The, I think the director's cut was quite distinctively longer. I think maybe the original might have been two hours. So I think he added a lot for the for the home video.
1: He really did, and you know, if you, if you look at Quack Jay Young's Work in general, he is the narration king, which I have a massive problem with. I almost let him get away with it with my sassy girl, I didn't with a lot of his other films, both in Korea and sort of Hong Kong. So
0: stand by your love for it, I'll, and I'll stand by my sort of. Well, it's okay, I
1: guess. I com- I completely understand your opinion, and I would ag- I would say quite a few people will agree with you. It's just a very personal thing.
0: Absolutely. That's good. Good enough. And a good man. Uh, she got good critical notices for the psychological thriller The Uninvited in 2003. And uh, again, The Uninvited US movie that was released in 2010 or 11 is actually not a remake of that, but a remake of A Tale of Two Sisters to add the con- to the confusion. So, right. uh, but uh, m- maybe someone wants to remake The Uninvited, the Korean one, but uh, maybe they simply haven't. Uh, but it, it didn't. Generate box office success, you know. She, but but nonetheless, she was a pre, uh, you know constant present image, as you alluded to. Uh, so so the star didn't like fall quickly or anything. But uh, the my Sassy girl director and star reunion for 2004's Windstruck, you know, seemed to signal that the repeat of her on screen image, you know, the style and her presence was wearing thin. According to the notes I I found, that uh, maybe she had been overexposed in general. So. What's your take on that, um, that theory and uh, and Windstruck as a movie?
1: In terms of Windstruck, I think, again, she was, she was the victim of Korean cinema rather than her just becoming less popular. Once My Sassy Girl came out, it was so successful. There was a huge spate of feisty women films, you know, girls beating boys up. There was a My Wife is a Gangster series of films. There was Windstruck. And by the time Windstruck came out people had got to the point where they were just sick of girls beating up boys they'd seen it so much it had originally been wow cool you know that that's what we women want to be by the time five six seven eight films come out you're just seeing the same thing again and again
0: classic commercialism at work there
1: exactly and she had become so typecast in that character that she couldn't get really any other roles if you look at The Uninvited, one of the few different roles she did get, it didn't do well because everyone expected it to be a normal horror and it's not. It's so quietly understated. I I love it for that. But again, it was almost people looked at it and said, well, she's done something different, it flopped, therefore she can only be this feisty character and we don't want to see that anymore. She's had a really hard run around early to
0: mid-2000s. Is Windstruck a movie that if you look at it now... Could you could you sort of extract everything that went on commercially and view it on its own sort of merits? Or is it still a movie that's born out of commercialism and can't avoid that sort of cloud?
1: It screams, we've done this before and we're doing it again because we assume people want it. It's not a good film. Her character isn't really very likable. She's She starts out Funnily enough, as a, a vicious policewoman, you know, standing up for herself, and eventually finds love, and turns out that she's really a a sweet, sweet girl. It's just the same thing again and again. Even if you hadn't seen any of the other films, it still feels tired. It's just it's not done very well.
0: And since we have a Hong Kong Korea crossover on her film on her filmography in the form of two thousand and six Daisy. Um, the Hong Kong part uh, being, uh, you know, very familiar to me because I'm I'm familiar with the director Andrew Lau, which is an excellent cinematographer, occasional good solo director, better as a co-director because him and Alan Mack directed the Infernal Affairs movies, but on his own it's it's uh, it's a bumpy bumpy thing. You know, he, he's good at commercial spectacle, but sometimes not even that. But uh, you know, setting aside that, in terms of my opinions, I never saw Daisy because I had no interest. Uh, how, how was Daisy and did it further her at all as a performer?
1: Daisy's a strange film.
0: Shot in uh, the Netherlands, I think.
1: Entirely in the Netherlands. It's gorgeously beautiful, it, visually. It's got Arjun Ji-hun in it. It's got Jung Woo-sung who's possibly the, you know, the, the major leading man that she's worked with a couple of times. I have major problems with the way the plot is done there's again there's constant narration of what you're looking at on screen which which actually grates I'm not going to give too many spoilers away but early in the film something happens to her character to the point where she can no longer speak so for the whole of the rest of the film there are lots of hand movements and holding up cards with writing on it and you just think oh come on (laughs) the worst part of Daisy is the fact that one of the characters that is doing one of the many narrations dies, and then he narrates the fact that he's dead as the camera zooms in on his coffin. If you stripped all that away and actually looked at the film without all those elements, it would actually be a nice, I guess, a gentle romance, but the way it's put together just destroys it completely. And she was trying at that point to move her career to get it to resurge and it failed miserably because of that.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised that Andrew Lau was behind this because I have really no faith in him as a solo director. It's um, I can't remember many that I thought like, oh wow, this is it. I mean, Infernal Affairs... I always said that because Alan Mack, the co-director, co-wrote the script as well with uh, Felix Chong. I I think it was a beautiful merger of because Alan had done quite a few interesting movies before. I think it was a beautiful merger between someone who knows visuals is a decent enough director but merging it with a young guy with an exciting voice and I thought that co-directing thing with that material... Yeah. was a match made in heaven. On his own, is it's uh, is, uh, questionable. I like very much his uh, undercover movie, To Live and Die in Sim Chia Tsui, from 1995. It's a very solid sort of City on Fire style movie. Coincidentally, Andrew Lau shot City on Fire. So he's an excellent cinematographer. He's done classic Hong Kong movies that furthered Hong Kong cinema in terms of visual style. But as a director, pretty bland, in my opinion.
1: Well, you know, Daisy doesn't change my opinion on that either.
0: Fast forward to 2009 and Jun Ji-hyun's English language debut, an introduction of her westernized name, I guess, came in, came uh, at this point, uh, Gianna Jun, or had that name been floating about before, Blood, the Last Vampire?
1: Essentially, and from that point on, if you look at any of the subtitled versions of her films, or virtually any of them, you will see her written as Gianna Jun. I, refu- I refuse to call her Gianna Jun, you know, she's Jun Ji-hyun.
0: A bloody Lost Vampire was based on the multimedia juggernaut, uh, Japanese property, uh, multimedia juggernaut thing of the same name, and it included, amidst all that, I mean, there's games and stuff, uh, but it included, a mid all that, an hour long anime, which was then a- a- adapted into this uh, this uh, uh, live action movie, directed by Chris Naun or Nahoon, I don't know how you pronounce that, uh, the director of Kiss of the Dragon. I never did see it. Mainly based on the fact I wasn't wild about the anime at all. Actually, I mean, so an hour long. So yeah, I guess it's okay. But people adore the crap out of this. So I nah, it wasn't really for me. Uh, Maybe wrong era for me because in terms of anime, I enjoy eighties and nineties anime much much more. Occasional movies made nowadays and/or for the last ten years or whatever they they are appealing to me because I'm a fan of certain directors, uh, even though they're making you know, anime of the modern era, such as the Skycrawlers by the director of Ghost in the Shell and so forth. So, I mean, I have an interest in that. But Also of note, by the way, in terms of Blood the Lost Vampire, uh, friends of the network, Mike Lido, worked behind the scenes, uh, as well as a British martial arts uh, teacher and uh, actor, uh, Chris Jones. Uh, he appears in the film, uh, in action scenes, uh, choreographed by Hong Kong director and action director Corey Yun thinking back on Blood, Lost Vampire, it seemed to come and go.
1: It really did.
0: Hence it wasn't the breakout maybe international producers were hoping for, but uh, did, did you, just to be thorough in your own eyes, catch both the anime and live version? And uh, how, how was this transition for her from Korea to international, and from Korean to English language? Because I assume she acts in English language mainly.
1: Junji Ji-hun's English is impeccable. She's, she's incredibly adept at speaking english etc cetera, etc cetera. i thought the anime was all right i actually saw it after i'd seen the film specifically just to try and catch up it, it didn't really do that much for me but it's a damn sight better than the film problem with the film is the cgi looks like it's not finished that this story is just so unexciting the choreography is incredible she's incredible in terms of, you know, put a sword in her hand and she goes at it, she's phenomenal in it. That's the only good thing about it. It's just a bland film that I guess she was again trying to push herself further. Her career in Korea wasn't doing what it should, so she started to look internationally and she chose the wrong project. I remember seeing it in the cinema, well, seeing that it was in the cinema in London via a poster, and it was there one day and a couple of days later it was gone it was wow. just, it was in and out it just, it didn't deserve to be seen it's just a bland film and the the worst thing about it the whole way through they make out that she's this Japanese girl which I have a problem with since she's Korean and at the very end I think one of the last lines is, oh I don't even think she's Japanese and you just think oh, no, just terrible terrible
0: well, good enough for trying, I suppose, and for everyone to try and, uh, you know, make the juggernaut that was the bloody Lost vampire. Maybe it's still ongoing quite strongly. I don't follow recent anime, but uh, it seems like in terms of live action, it wasn't really meant to be if looking at the property alone. Uh, so, um, so, so, yeah, there it is. Talking a little bit about a man who was Superman, was her image do-over? Being very, you know, plain-looking, looks like she has no makeup on throughout the whole film, was that really, like, sensational and publicized and noticeable where she not only did that, but cut her, like, signature long hair and played this type of character? Was that, like, did did that make anyone, audiences and fans go, (gasps) what's she doing?
1: The big thing was the cutting of the hair. There was, I don't seem to remember any real mention of, you know her lack of makeup or just appearing as a plain girl, but I remember the cutting of the hair was you know Zjiun's next film she's cut off her trademark hair <gasps> shock shock horror, yes and no I guess
0: but but would this be the movie that sort of started a little bit of a career resurgence and a second wind in in her in terms of her career with a new you know, sense of image or even style or, or or was it a latter movie that sort of started to turn things around for her
1: I think. Helped her career. I don't think it started to turn around. Her huge resurgence didn't actually start until, really, in terms of Korean cinema, until 2012 when she starred in The Thieves, which was by um, Chung Chung Hoon, I think. It was so successful. It blew the box office away, and she's great in it, that she couldn't help but suddenly be the big star that she'd always been again. And from that point on, she has chosen really well. She did Rio Sung 1's The Berlin File, which, again, went through the roof box office-wise, and she's incredible in it, and she shows her talent.
0: Do you like those as commercial vehicles in general, like uh, setting, setting aside what she did? what Were they, like, good fun movies?
1: I think they're phenomenal films. The Thieves is classic, you know, massive heist movie. She's the acrobatic thief, I guess. It's an incredible... Enjoyable film. We were talking earlier um, between ourselves about how important it is for cinema to be enjoyable. The Thieves is just a, a rip roaring roller coaster ride. It's f- it's a fun film. The Berlin File, standard spy sort of thing, done really well. It's Rio One. He's the action kid.
0: Is that the um, actor or filmmaker behind City of Violence?
1: Yes, the same director. And if you think of City of Violence in terms of its pace, it's style. That's sort of what you're looking at with The Berlin File as well. And then, of course, last year she did Assassination, which I would go as far as to say was possibly my favourite film of last year. Again, it's a very, you know, Japanese occupation spy drama. She plays a female spy and she holds that movie from start to finish. Her career can do no wrong in my eyes right now.
0: I I was curious about The movie industry, whether in Korea or elsewhere, can be a very, very crappy place. You can Mm -hmm. be absorbed and loved and spat out in a moment's notice, you know, when you have no staying power anymore, uh, whether male or female. And I mean, if you look at Korea in general, is it common for someone to have, you know, man or woman, you know, and and especially someone who breaks commercially and is considered an image? Do they have stay in power most of the time? Like, do they get a fair chance? You you think in the eyes of the audiences and studios when, especially passing, you know, thirty or forty years old uh, uh, after having been twenty something breakout stars?
1: I think they have a hard time of it. I really do. As you say, you know, the audiences can be very very dismissive of something that they loved two years ago. The big stars, you know, the Jeon Do Yoon, Son Ye Jin, big female stars, Jin Ji have managed to hold it together and they've held it together because the movies they've done have been so popular that people have been unable to stay annoyed at them, if you like.
0: Yeah, because it's not like, yeah, they're good, but are they popular? And that popular is the is the you know the key thing sometimes to uh, to achieve uh, to achieve staying power.
1: If you look at Sonya Jin and Junji and they've also gone and been in hugely successful television dramas. Which has boosted them even further. I know we're going to talk a little bit about her TV work in a minute, but that sort of cements it so that they're so popular in a really popular TV show. So the next movie they do, everybody's going to go and see it.
0: So, so, so is that a key you think to uh, not overexpose yourself, but uh, expose yourself, but definitely realize the power of TV as a leap of point into movies. Uh... And uh, not only once, but uh, maybe several times throughout your career. Is that a key thing for men men or women in, uh, in the industry?
1: I think it's a key thing for men and women. I mean, if you look at Wang Jun-min, while we're talking about a man who was Superman, throughout his career, he's done TV, he's done film, and they keep themselves as a presence. The bigger thing is that they've chosen some of the very few, excuse me, you TV film fans or TV fans, They've chosen projects that are good and there are not that many TV dramas that could be said to be great. And they've managed to do that and that has, it's, it's just bolstered them completely.
0: That's, uh, yeah, it's uh, generally interesting because it's not a purely Korean thing. I mean, when age sets in, film industry can be very, very crappy, unfortunately, because age is not a detractor for, for the image, you know, rather that's a, that's a pro. That's a that 's a positive for me to see someone grow into themselves as an artist and uh, you know as a man or woman uh, so
1: um I, I think in in korea certainly it's it 's an awful lot harder for women because they 're so they 're so obsessed with youth and beauty that you know as a as an actress ages she's she 's going to be less what the young audiences want to see because they 're not like her anymore on the plus side you know Jun Ji-hun's another one of these lovely ladies who just doesn't seem to age, you know, she's she's her mid thirties now and she still looks like she's twenty. You know, it's not necessarily gonna be a problem of her getting too old and looking too old. She could still she couldn't play a nineteen year old but she's not far
0: off. Speaking of T V, she continued her enhance her audience appeal and as uh, success when returning to TV in the fantasy romance My Love from the Star. And it, it it's amazing sort of and amusing to read how much of a style icon she she's become after certain you know roles in addition to her media appearances, like she sets trends in fashion it's said you know she sets trend in terms of makeup and uh, irrational or not i hope it's a rational thing uh, and ultimately she was awarded for the for that uh, performance in that tv series at the 2014 baksang arts awards and uh, the SP. BS Drama Awards the same year gave her an award for her performance on the show. She 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 seems like she was almost labeled as a brand almost, but it's a mixture, I suppose, of skill, instant recognition, and commercial pull. Meaning that thank God skill is in there, so she's not just this uh, empty brand necessarily. You know,
1: I think I think her choice in being in My Love from the Star was was the wisest move she could ever make. I mean, there was a while. I I know a lot of Korean drama people, groups on Facebook and the like. And while that was going on, I almost had to stay away from Facebook because they talked about nothing (laughs) else for week upon week upon week upon week. It was so hugely successful. You know, to her credit, she is one of the really instantly recognizable Korean actresses, and she is talented, so... It's all of the above,
0: and and also to sort of confirm, I guess, all of that there. But by now, it seems like she can plow her own path. Like management isn't making the decision for her, and she can jump sort of freely between big screen and small screen, and 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 that should mean, right, that she is she's sought after for her acting rather than solely for her brand.
1: Pretty much, I think at this point in time, she can do no wrong. She's done her last. If you look three films her last TV show were all huge hits and she can she can pick and choose as and when she wants
0: that's very cool and uh, and, and that that's based on work you know and uh, and uh, developing yourself and and all of that so that's uh, very inspiring to hear any spontaneous highlights in uh, the movie choices between uh, 2014 and up until now and uh, anything uh, anything coming up that's uh, that's making you um, drool, uh, drool uncontrollably. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she hasn't actually made any official announcement on her next project. I assume she's considering her options, I guess. If you're talking about her films in general in recent years, you've got to see them all. You've got to see The Thieves. You've got to see The Berlin File. And you've, I beg you to see Assassination. Best film of 2015. And I can't wait till the next thing she does because she's going to get to choose whatever role she wants and I hope she'll choose well.
0: Do you think she's down trying out the English-speaking market thingy?
1: I would think certainly for the time being. I mean, it just didn't go that well. You never know. You never know. But she's had so much success in Korea, I'd almost think she's happy to hang there. Whereas when she did her English-language stuff... Her career in Korea wasn't going that well, and I think that's why she did it.
0: Best of luck to her. Finally, I know who she is properly, because uh, now with this movie, now I can recognize her. I have an image of her, a likable image of her, right?
1: (laughs) Ah, but when you first saw her in A Man Who Was Superman, you did remember her, didn't you?
0: I I gotta be honest, man. She didn't... No, no, I didn't. It was... it's, It's my fault. It's my fault, because when I don't like something... It sort of just fades from my memory a little bit, and I didn't expose myself to any of her movies between then and now, so no, I didn't, but now I do now I have like a m- mental image of what she looks like, and then I can t- google image other stuff where she whether she's all dolled up or, or not, and up, ah, I got different images now, so it, entirely my fault, but that that, that that's the honesty God truth, but in terms of my quick opinion of a man who was Superman, commercial, yes, and in field, but also it's brave enough. Because it's very complex. It's uh, very pitch black at what point. Oh, is it ever. It's very unflinching in its examination of cynicism and mental illness. But also, it's very purely positive. And it's a rewarding, tough time that manages to sort of keep drama, melodrama. And it's not preachy, but it could have been. But it, it balances that, you know. Uh, balances its sort of ultimate message of positivity and evolving yourself. And uh, so, I very much uh, liked it. And I didn't expect it to be that much complexity in one but that's a very very good thing uh, so it, it, it's doing the balancing act well so in in short what do you want to say about uh, a man who was superman to lead us into the discussion
1: if you look at korean cinema in general and you want a film that expresses the general ideas that you're going to see in every korean film you can ever think of watch a man who was superman it is beautifully balanced it's got darkness it's got positivity it talks yes it talks about mental issues it also talks about korean history in terms of the Gwangju uprising which plays a part in what happens to one of the main characters so if you want to after you've watched the film you can go and find out a little bit about korean history but it's not preachy it's in there as a plot point and it's a beautifully handled plot point absolutely beautiful you know and it does have to be said it's based on a true story, so... I was about
0: to ask that, because like, I didn't know, and then like, at the end of the movie, it seems like they're typing out like what happened to the characters afterwards, and it's like, you wouldn't do that if you were making fiction. There's something, I think there's some some truth in this.
1: Absolutely true. The main male character played by Wang Jun-min was a real man, and what happens to him in the film happened to him for real.
0: We shouldn't spoil that, though, so...
1: I totally agree, but based on a true story, and it's handled beautifully. One of my favourite Korean films from the late 2000s.
0: Excellent. Well, it's uh, it has cynicism, a cynical worldview, and we see first the Earth at a distance. So there's no selfishness there. There's no untrusting humans from far away. And then, close up, everything's fucked. <laughs> like, uh, that, that's coming from her, really. But then Wang Jung-min, the Superman of it all, wakes up and is this wonderfully contrasting energy to the grey and dull sort of city life and the people on the go who don't want to concern themselves with anything but getting to the place they're going to so he's got his wine shirt on he wakes up and he smiles and he, he's moving with purpose and that, that sort of sets the stage that we, we got positive energy here hopefully it's going to pay off for the movie and then contrasts it with uh, with her who is uh, she, she sort of admits that she's an asshole and she doesn't <laughs> really care about that so, because someone uh, walks into the to the editing room, they're in or the editing office, and someone says, "So, someone parked in the handicapped space. Can can you please move the car?" She hands the keys to one of her assistants or whatever. Move my car. <laughs> so that was like, "Yep, she's an asshole, and she doesn't care anymore." So, she, but but she's worn down as a human. That, that and 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 all of that creates interest, you know from the get-go that's why i'm sort of talking of this from you know minute one but when she sees him like he's not quirky or odd necessarily yes something doesn't seem right but he isn't necessarily dangerous like his filter of the world is different anyone could see that you know he says cars are beasts you know and uh, that's you know instant interest for the movie like this is huh. I don't think it's as simple as what an odd case. Let's make ninety minutes. Uh, let's make fun of him for ninety minutes. It's it doesn't give off that vibe that it's going to be simplistic about it. There's something going on here. Moments are carefully plotted out and uh, executed, and also the score is very carefully plotted out because it goes from you know regular sweeping sweeping violin based music to even like a Latin flavored type of score with uh, with accordions and flutes and what have you. So there's a lot of like. Fred's introduced here that, ah, okay, go on. This is this is going to be interesting, because he is interesting. She is pretty nasty. <laughs> and you wonder to yourself, is she going to exploit him for TV? There seems to be many things going right from the get-go, meaning there's a belief in the material. The filmmaker is now two movies in, and there's been awards left and right, and critics critical praise left and right. But the filmmaker, in this case, seems very confident to... Use all of this as a leap-off point to what actually is very unexpected. Did you do? You remember? Did you remember feeling that confidence at uh, uh, from the get-go? That okay, he's got this. I think he's got this
1: massively from the very first time you see Wang Junmin, the main male character, the the Superman chasing after a guy that stole Jun Ji-hun's camera. The way he runs, as soon as I saw that, not only did it warm me to the film it just made me think that's Wang Jun-min's, this is going to be his defining role. This is this is going to be amazing. And it's so lighthearted and well-conceived. You just think the whole thing's going to hit a, a gorgeous balance here. I know it is. And considering the fact that we've dealt with Jun-jian Jin as just a nasty, virtual alcoholic, chain-smoking cynic who's so stressed, her hair's falling out, you just know it's going to be a beautiful Kick off between the two.
0: It's all done in like this clean, straight style that earns whatever dip in style it goes for because it's story oriented. You know, whenever we see uh, the, the kryptonite that's lodged in his brain shot, which is something he talks of, a, a lot of it has to do with his perception of reality versus what is reality. You know, so therefore these scenes are going to be in there. And also, it's not, it never gave the vibe of, of being condescending because it isn't a comedy that's gonna start making fun of mental illness and uh, God knows Hong Kong has not portrayed mental illness in a very good way but it's certainly melodramatic as fuck and this one threatens to be but never really it never really does so uh, I think it's very professional but also dedicated to the story because it seems rather obvious of course that he is sick, A Superman is sick, he says yeah, I have something in my head and you think, and he's eat, uh, he eats medicine as well and goes into convulsions and like epileptic fits and what have you. So, but it isn't Paul. But by when you see that twenty minutes in, it's not like you figure out the movie at that point. Like you, you sort of know that. I think it's smarter than to play its entire deck of cards already.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And you know that you do know there's something going on, and I think that is part of the pull into it. Plus, the character is portrayed as so genuinely likable that even when it goes darker, you're you're rooting for these characters. You really are. All the interactions, even, you know, little um, Jinji, the little girl in it, they have such chemistry. They're such nice characters. They're beautifully created. You can't help but love this.
0: We'll, we'll talk the darkness because I think that's a very valid thing to bring in because it is mental illness we're dealing with and it's not always 100% rosy. It can... Go entirely wrong, you know, because he bothers people. You know what he does? You know, he startles people and he kind of bothers people, uh. but it seems harmful enough until a later point in the movie. Again, we won't spoil it necessarily, but it's important to know that this is very unflinching in its depiction of uh, mental illness. But it's also very playful because I love his fantasy as Clock Kent. That uh, fantasy that's uh, almost done as, like, it's the Daily Planet in like the 50s and 60s almost or 40s or 50s that's how they portray it and it's all like i I love the tropes here like the editor is like the deadline is now and john G jean is there as another character saying oh i gotta rewrite my article they even do um the jimmy olsen character as blackface which is as incorrect that uh, politically incorrect as that is i think he, our director is making the point that, well, it would have been that way in the 40s or 50s or even 60s, uh, you know. Um, what do you think?
1: I guess so, and I'd almost agree with you. That is, we spoke a couple of days yeah. ago about the film a little bit, and I said there was a two-second frame that I had a problem okay, with. Okay, okay,
0: fair enough, fair enough. I, I didn't, I, I realized that, oh, nah, not a good move, but I think h- half a point was Due to the fact that okay, it was like that at some point, but then again, they don't have Westerners in the scene though, so uh, they don't make anyone else look like they're Westerners. So, yeah, maybe so. But uh, I, I I I've been offended by other things in movies. Uh, maybe I should have been in this case, but it's a two second frame indeed, and uh, then then it's uh...
1: I think I think again, it's a it's a very personal thing. I just thought they didn't need to have that character at all. If it hadn't been there, it wouldn't have it. Would have pleased me. Put it that way.
0: Yeah, fair, fair enough. Very much. The, the whole sequence, I think, is wonderful because it uh it's, it's a sort of completely different uh, style to the modern style that cool. that it depicts. So I, I think it's a, I think it's cool, and and all, and it's pretty much funny because we see many examples of. Uh, he thinks he's using his superpowers, but when he is actuality is not. You know, at one point he's using his laser vision against a, a car windshield, and as a matter of fact, he's just there, sort of flicking a mirror and annoying people. <laughs> you know, and and that's super funny. His performance could have gone wrong because it's super big. He's a big guy too. You know, you know he's, totally, uh, totally. so it could have gone so wrong in combination with that. That the positivity could have been way too sugary, but everyone is within the balance. They sort of keep like knocking on that door of where you'll go in and uh, you'll be on the wrong side of the balance but to doing it just right and uh, then you know as, as i said we're, we're it's not afraid to switch into darkness which i'll which i'll get to but i want to ask this deglamorized Ji Hyun, whether she's wearing a little makeup or no makeup is that uh, was that a startling image for you to see her so sort of worn
1: it was a, a wonderfully surprising image. You look at the the biggest female stars. You, you may be aware that I'm quite taken with quite a few female Korean stars. You know, you always you look at them in whatever photo shoot or whatever film, and you think, but they're so beautiful. Why do they need makeup? And it was really lovely to see her unmade up and to see that she really is as beautiful. In fact. She she suits not having makeup more than she suits having makeup. I think that was a, a, a nice move. And it just, it shows her to be a normal, her character to be just a very normal girl, very underneath it all, down to earth, very unglammed. I think it works beautifully.
0: And, and in a way, she's actually overshadowed, but not by him, by Wang Jiangmin, because she doesn't seem like she's doing much. Mm. But, that, but she's superbly in tune with what she needs to do you know she's uh, an observer most of the time and over the course of the movie she transforms a little bit but she is an observer to watching this energy and uh and obviously she there is that sort of crucial point where she's torn about what to do with him because she he is not well he he has something in his brain we know that way before the halfway point of the movie whether it's a tumor or Whatever it is, we won't uh, spoil that, but uh, uh, before we go into the serious thing, I I, I want to share the moment that made me laugh out loud so much, like comedy done in a good way based on uh, actors' banter being in tune with each other. At one point, he is in her house. He's standing there, super creepy, and uh, she wakes up on on the sofa like, how did you get in? And, uh, you know, get out, get out. Just as the scene sort of ends, she slams the door and she checks that the chain is working and whatever, and he's out of the apartment and then shouts from outside of the, you know, on the other side of the door, make sure the chain is on next time. And I thought, oh, that's perfect, man. <laughs> that that explains it all. And uh, what he's doing is creepy, but I was hilarious. because
1: there, there are quite a quite a few very, very gentle, gentle, funny moments, and that's one of the the strongest I mean it is it's a beautiful moment
0: but 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 how do you think it um as it skids into the darkness like uh how do you do, do you think it transitions well because from a very contrasting thing of being uh you know, playful and light and then you see him you know knock himself out on the wall because his meds are out and then that section of the movie sort of triggers do, do you think that's um do you think that transition um is uh, done well
1: I think the transition is done almost perfectly by the vague recollection on the first time I watched a man who was Superman by the time that was just about to hit I was getting to the point of really wanting to know what was going on I wanted to be told I'd held off for that hour or whatever fine I'd enjoyed it all but I was getting to the point where I wanted to know and just as that was hitting my head they start explaining it and it gives such an extra depth everything Mm -hmm. when you find out what his true story is that it just can't help but be hugely poignant considering the fact that you've sort of fallen in love with all the characters up to that point anyway.
0: Yeah and it's also very brave for our director to make the backstory this dark and I'm going to keep it vague but it is pretty damn unflinching and pitch black Mm. and yet doesn't stray in terms of uh, the emotional balance that needs to be there because you, you finally get that sort of sign that his his sort of um, delusion could be dangerous. You know, he could be harmful, and he shows that he is at one point. You know, he uh, uh, the you know the construction work is that he bothers him. Sort of, he thinks he's fighting a monster in the form of that uh, big uh, crane or or, um, or truck. That needs to be there because the the. The sort of balance in terms of mental illness means that you, you can be very unpredictable. The case might be, therefore, that you need to medicine someone like that, even if they are providing you know a positive impact on their community. But society is structured in a way, back then, certainly now, where it's dangerous to risk that. And I think that, that's her reasoning for you know having doctors look at him. It's heartbreaking because it seems like he is fine. But he's reliant on he is reliant on medicine and there's there's something you know hugely physical wrong with him as well. Like there is something in his brain, as we said. That travels to us as audiences as well. We ask ourselves that question. Okay, is it wrong to essentially like put him away, or should you have someone in, in the community be that free, even if he, he is experiencing the world through a way different filter than you and I are? And uh, I, I'm not I, I'm not the one to answer that question. And the movie isn't like pure fantasy, in in terms of like it, it it asks that question in a very real way. So it isn't pure fantasy, and it's all made up mental illness and notions of uh, mental illness. No, no, no. It plays that very real and uh, as heartbreaking as it possibly would be, and but not melodramatic, right?
1: That's the I think one of the strongest points of it. It it does have melodrama, but it isn't melodramatic. I think her difficulty in knowing what she should do, is as heartbreaking as his story. Um, I really felt for her in terms of what she had to do. And as you said, her her role for a lot of it, she doesn't really need to do that much compared to him. That sort of defines her character. It defines her performance. When you consider what, what she does, how it changes who he is and what he does in terms of helping people or not helping people, I think that darkness is so poignant on both sides.
0: Her character becomes affected under the surface, you know, it comes out later how much this has changed her and those are all tropes, you know. You could have put that in in, in a very badly voiceover type of trailer you know? and he would change their lives forever. It, totally. it They are tropes but it's played well and it's played real and uh, there's a controlled sense of cinematic style here because character and content speak, not whooshy sounds on a soundtrack and visuals or, well, let's give the audience a ride here. No, but he dips into a confident professional cinematic style that never strays from the fact that character and content and story needs to speak uh, way louder.
1: I totally agree, and on that Note if you were to go to YouTube again and search for A Man Who Was Superman, which is also sometimes called If I Were Superman, you know, you search for, you know, Superman Korean movie, you'll find a lot of trailers, and the trailers hit the wrong side of exactly that, that line you're talking about. When you watch them, they look like they're melodramatic, they look like they're you know, hitting all the wrong buttons and it does the film such a huge disservice considering the fact that it handles it so beautifully. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just shows how close that balance is and how good our director was in getting it right when the the people that produce trailers just couldn't.
0: Yeah, even you know when you watch the movie, you you might think it's gonna be hugely emotional and melodramatic, but there are examples where, you know, maybe the most grand example is when she at one point left the third of the movie watches watches where the edit that she's continually constructing, you know, that uh, documentary about him. She watches that edit of, uh, it might be of a scene where she puts the hairpin in, uh, on him, you know, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, so that the band-aid uh, over his head uh, maintains. And she gets glossy, glossy-eyed. But we never see a tear. Because he cuts away, presumably before there was a tear, because there was a lot of <laughs> the tears were there. But she just, she's glossy-eyed, and that's more than enough. That's all we need. I mean, uh, it's uh, it could have been affecting, I suppose, if a single tear would have run down her uh, cheek. But no, it's uh, it says all it needs to say. And her cynicism is not overplayed either. She she incredibly natural all throughout the movie, and her change is uh, very much real and uh, but, but complex at the same time, which I I, I possibly should come back to. You know, it, it's easy to to pick it up the the sort of psychological undertones and what have you. But it's not super simplified either, in my opinion. It's quite complex, especially by the end when they start to really emphasize that key line, and this is not a spoiler, of you can't change your past, but you are in the position to affect your future. Not that this is the end of my notes, but the way they depict that is something you need to sort of pay attention to. Very much. It's not the exposition dumped on us through a voiceover or anything. It's uh, through events, and uh, you, you look at it and you wonder: like, there's dark outcomes looming, and I guess it's a half a spoiler, I suppose. But are they really dark outcomes for either of the characters? And that question, that key central question, that he doesn't ask, but you you pick up on. Like, he he doesn't ask it specifically. No one says to themselves, you know. What is it all about? You know, I mean? yeah. uh, and I think that's uh, I think that's wonderful. But but by God, it's not easy to watch. Paul, the pitch black sort of backstory, and also what happens at the end of the film—it's it's terrible.
1: I mean, the funny the funny thing is, whenever you watched it, you sent me a message that sort of said there's some some terrible things going on in there. And thinking about it, I I agreed with you, but. Every time I look back at a man who was Superman, I view it as a quirky, really positive little film. It is, Even it is. though there's such darkness in it, it almost goes to the back of your head and you, you consider the, the positivity of it, or I do anyway, above everything else. And I don't think any other film has hit me like with as much darkness in it. I don't think any other film has hit me like that in, in memory.
0: Well, 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 the well, the pitch black thing coexists with the ultimate positivity, though. It, it needs to be there, and it needs oh, to be that terrible because that's what happened. But it's uh, it's not inconceivable that the pitch black leads to this and this and this, and ultimately what we get at the end. There are terrible things, but it's not cynical and terrible for the sake of it. It makes sense that, and uh, the journey by the end, you know, all those dream images by the back end uh, which represents you know obviously the, the theme here and they're, they're symbolic my god paul if you look at those images they could have been so overstated if handled by someone else because he goes for it he goes for the juggler that sort of caresses us a little bit <laughs> instead he doesn't rip rip it out and uh, and overdoes it and therefore kills the message no my god he was he was near i, I think he was near and maybe saw that as a challenge. Okay, I'm going to push, but I'm going to make it good, though. Um, and I'm not going to go overboard.
1: And I think it shows real talent to be able to know where to draw that line. So, you know, that's a difficult line to traverse, really.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, though, if you you might answer this just vaguely through a yes or no. Okay. Do you think the whole uh, event that surrounds the kid and the protests and what happened there? Do you think that would ever show up in an American remake of this? Because no. they no, because it's so fucking dark, man. It's so dark. It's it, it anyone can be a victim in this movie. Adults, adults, and kids.
1: I th- I think that that can only work because of Korea and the fact that everybody knows what happened at that period of time in Korean history.
0: Because the movie doesn't say that, but it, that is that evident, right? Like the the flashback to him as a kid really has to do with. Well, when they place it in the 1950s, I suppose, I suppose, many Koreans would automatically feel like, okay, it takes place during that protest and those riots, even though we never see those riots on screen.
1: Yeah, you only—I mean, you only hear the sound of vo- some voice saying, "Come out, citizens!" Blah, 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 blah. I think that's beautifully done. But if you look at how much Gwangju, which is where that situation set, has played in Korean cinema from whenever to this year even it's so in the korean psyche Mm. that as soon as it's even vaguely mentioned people can relate to it the the main character's true story is actually well known i was i was at a screening the other night and i met a korean girl who sometimes works as an interpreter at the screening and we we went and had a quick glass of wine and I, she said, what, what are you up to this week? I said, I'm, I'm doing a podcast on a man who was Superman. She said, I don't know the film. And as soon as I mentioned what happens to the child character, she was able to name the man and say, oh, you know, he, he was very well known for the character that he is, the real life character. And I think, there's no real need to overstate it. I think they beautifully understate it, and quite rightly so.
0: What is he most famous for, uh, otherwise, uh, Wang Jingmin? Because I'm not sure I've seen another movie with him, to be honest.
1: I would guarantee you have. I would guarantee you've seen probably quite a few. Um, He's done far, far, far more movies than Jinji Yun. His first role was in The General's Son when he was a young man. He was in Shiri, which is possibly the most classic Korean film of the new Korean cinema wave. And that's sort of, you know, 1990 to 99. From then, he's just, he's gone through the roof. He was in This Charming Girl, which is one of my favorite Korean films. He was in A Bittersweet Life with Lee Young hun which was Kim ji uns sort of the guy that did The Good, The Bad, The Weird. It was one of his films. Endless, endless things. Of course, Man Who Was Superman. The Unjust, which was another big, battle film, he was in Battlefield Heroes.
0: He's like a it's like a dependable leading man for and it draws in audiences as opposed to yeah. because he because he also seems like he could go into character acting quite uh, easily rather than like
1: sorry, he he sort of balances between the two. He'll do one film where he's a supporting role that's important, such as the Wailing, which he's also in from last year, or he'll do a huge leading role like "'Ode to My Father,' which is just a heartbreaking 2014 film. You know, he's been in all the big films over the last five, six years. You mentioned Ryo Sung-wan, the action kid of Korean cinema. Wang Jin min has been in numerous of his films, from veteran to The Unjust to da-da-da-da-da. He's just, he's become one of the biggest male stars in Korean cinema. Because of his ability to shift between small roles, big roles and the fact that he can be so iconic just as he is in a man who's Superman.
0: It's a big performance but it requires subtlety as well because there are points where she asks him tough questions and that breaks his shell a little bit. He he, he gets un- uncomfortable hearing such direct questions you know, because he, is, he has a little bit of the, the mannerisms of a kid when he's in his Superman element. When he's uncomfortable, he plays that very well. Why do you ask me those questions? Um, so, so you, know, you know, he looks in the ground and tries to divert the situation. Uh, and that's also simple looking, but obviously it's super hard to, to nail. Yeah. I think many people can do it good, but it's super hard to nail. and I think he certainly, certainly does it. And um, I think I'll conclude my notes there, my friend. Uh, I think yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's a tough one. I didn't expect that, but very 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 rewarding, and uh, I I don't think people would be turned off by the fact that it is this pitch black. I just think they will be engaged and hugely affected, but without being manipulated along the way, which is which is also key. So so yeah, it, it ultimately you know feels far like it's 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 far away from these red flags and conventions uh, of uh, this type of cinema. You know, it threatens to be all too close to it, but it never really is. So.
1: One more thing I would like to point to. This is his story. His story is the important thing. It's the thing that drives the whole thing. But in terms of the female character, I think her story, her change, is equally as important. And obviously it's because of her interactions with him. At the very start of the film, she's editing one of her movies and the guy she's working with starts to cry because it's emotional and she sort of laughs at him. You know, halfway through the movie, you mentioned when she's re-editing whatever, she's glassy-eyed but she doesn't cry. She's sort of starting to change. Yeah. By the end of the film, we see her in tears and one of the final scenes is her back in the editing room with the same other character. And when he cries, she says, that's your superpower. I think that move from her character is equally as important and poignant as his
0: it could have been cheesy, even if you wrote it that way. It could have been cheesy as made because you gotta be skilled to pull this off, and for us to believe in that journey. But we certainly do. There, there's like a key, key beats in her journey, and and therefore the performance gradually, you know, starts great, but it gradually grows and evolves, and by the end you notice her performance a lot more. Not because it's overdone, but you notice it, and you're supposed to by that point. Yeah. So, so yeah, and even one hundred, one hundred and four minutes of. Pretty, which is a pretty sound running time for the movie that it is. So uh, that's always a, a positive, I suppose. Totally. Uh, but yep, yeah, that's the end of my notes. So, do so you have any, any any other random things you wanted to get in? There?
1: I'm pretty much there. I just I hope everybody that listens to this podcast goes and seeks it out. It's it's a beautiful film and it deserves attention
0: and uh, as for availability therefore it's it's a little harder to get now in terms of a korean dvd but there's still a hong kong released and, and therefore english subtitled option available out there for a cheap price i think panorama put it out it is no blu-ray on the horizon as far as i know and if I'm being honest, it this could use a little upgrade. The DVD looked a little rough, to be honest, but obviously it's uh, it's more than watchable. It's uh, it just shows its age, and especially when blown up on a slightly bigger TV. But uh, but you certainly forget about that. So I hope hope uh, Korea brings a brings a remaster and a Blu-ray to the audience sometime soon. But uh, for now, this is uh, turn to Hong Kong and the likes of Yes Asia, and you, you'll get you'll get it at a good price. Uh, okay, buddy. Let's, uh, let's finish this one off then we don't announce anything at the end of these things uh, anymore but uh, we'll go into the think tank as I always say and uh, find something um, suitable like um, maybe not an experimental art film this time around you know <laughs> to be combined with some, something newer but uh, I'll still trust Paul's uh, judgement uh, fully so
1: we'll have a different take more possibly normal Exactly.
0: <laughs> so anyway this has uh, been uh, what's Korean cinema on the man who was Superman and uh, we are located on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows and uh, options for you uh, if you like Hong Kong cinema there's a show on that Korean cinema in this case Japanese and so forth and uh, we also do bonus episodes on the website every now and again if you have any opinions on uh, this movie Korean cinema or anything to say in general please write us podcastonfire at googlemail.com we are reachable on social media as well. Follow the buttons at the top of our website to our Facebook presence, our Twitter presence. Our iTunes feed is there too, so you can re- subscribe to it and rate it and leave a comment on it. And you can also uh, click to uh, on the Stitcher button to reach Stitcher Radio's web presence where you can find our shows uh, streaming. But You can also stream us on the go via Stitcher's applications available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And I write about uh, these uh, kind of, uh, not these kind of movies, The are Korean-tinted every now and again. But uh, I write about mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese genre movies on SoGoodReviews.com and my Twitter handle is, uh, sorry, my video review at SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. And Paul, you got the last plug uh, and uh, it's your plug, co- conveniently enough. Where Are you on the web, sir?
1: I can be found on the web at com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash celluloid, and I'm on Twitter at, at celluloid. Pop to the website, there's loads of Korean reviews and interviews, and once you've watched A Man Who Was Superman, if you like, you can go and read my elongated written thoughts on it.
0: Do you remember if there was a, one of those silly Korean special editions for A Man Who Was Superman, like a little keep? inside of dvd packaging oh.
1: there was a certain special edition that was released i think it was in sort of a tin box or what have you i don't know what was inside probably not a cape um maybe a hair clip you never know
0: or a bullet or a yeah <laughs> or horrible bullet. <laughs> <laughs> oh well my sassy girl got like an egg as theirs sort of limited edition, special edition, so they they, they think about these things sometimes. And uh, I kind
1: of, I kind of miss. They don't do it as much anymore. No,
0: I was about to say I don't hear about that stuff anymore. Like uh, one of the martial arts movies, there was a biopic, uh, Fighter in the Wind. Possibly had like a karate gi, like a, obviously a, a piece of clothing around the DVD edition and stuff like that. So I miss it. Expensive habit, though.
1: Well, yeah, but you know, you've got to spend your money on something.
0: look pretty though. Yeah. <laughs> all right buddy thank you very much for the lesson the education and for discussing the movie with me so uh, i've been kennedy and with me was paul Quinn and got celluloid so send us out buddy
1: see you later guys